You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. 3CR and Uprise Radio are recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and that we produce and record this audio on stolen land. Now we stand in solidarity of all Indigenous leaders, past, present and emerging. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets were flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Oh my, time heals all, but you out of time now. Judge gotta watch us from the clock tower. Little tear gas cleared the whole place out. I'll be back with the hazmat for the next round. We was trying to protest and the fires broke out. Look out for the secret agents, they be planted in the crowd. Set a civil unrest, but you sleep so sound. Like you don't hear the screams when we catching beat down. Staying quiet when they're killing niggas, but you speak loud when we ride. Got opinions coming from a place of privilege. Sicker than the COVID, how they did them on the ground. Speaking of the COVID, is it still going around? Why won't you tell me about the looting? What's that really all about? Cause they throw away black lives like paper towels plus unemployment rate. What? 40 million now killed a man in broad day. Might never see a trial. We just want to break chains like slaves in the South. Started in the North End, but we in the downtown. Riot cops try to block. Now we got a showdown. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. The bullets were flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lies. Stood downtown where I got parked with the rubber Good afternoon and welcome to Uprise Radio. My name is Jackson. I'm here as normal with James. Hello, James. Hey, Jackson. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And incredibly, even though we could be in the studio, we're not. That's my fault. I apologise. But we will be back in the studio in a fortnight's time. But today we're back in the Zoom world like so many people still are. I've got to say one thing, James. You know, sometimes as a utopian socialist, I can be a bit of a moaner about the state of the world, but I actually feel pretty good about the last 10 days or so here in Victoria. I mean, we've got almost three weeks at the time of recording uh, without a single case of COVID or a single death. It'll be 19 days on Wednesday, today. Uh, We've seen a large scale investment in public and social housing announced by the Victorian Mm. government, which is fantastic. Something we've talked about a lot on this show for a long time. There is a lot of pressure building on corrupt and sexist uh, liberal leaders in the federal level. If Morrison ever learns how to fire anyone for something as drastically disastrous as the robo debt scheme or the sports rorts or the Sydney airport robbery, you know, or any, or, you know, Christian Porter's foul behavior. At least we're seeing these things highlighted, if not anything done about them. You know, and we're going to see a large solar power battery, the biggest in, in the Southern Hemisphere, possibly the biggest in the world, built in Geelong, which I think is fantastic. Though they stopped short of making it publicly owned. I'm not exactly sure how the ownership is going to play out, but that was certainly the call from the Victorian Greens that this new infrastructure should be publicly owned. And I don't believe that's going to be the case with the battery, which is a shame. But apart from that, I mean, that's good news. We've got to celebrate good news sometimes, don't we? 
I think so. And uh, I think that it is all kind of little snippets of something that could be a part of a, uh, you know, a green-led uh, economic revival that we could see in lots of places. And, you know, I think particularly it would be very good to see that across Australia. It's a... Interesting, we've been talking about the US uh, political system with the elections there um, over the past few weeks. And there's a similar thing in a lot of ways that, you know, the states here and the states there can really operate however they like. And then you can have, um, you know, California, for instance, or Victoria kind of operating in a green-led um, recovery while the Fed, at a federal level, they're doing the opposite to that. So you can still kind of see some of those... Um, incremental kind of environmental reforms, even if we do have leaders like Morrison or Trump or Biden or Albanese, you know, people who really are uncommittal about a, a real change um, that we need to see. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and you know, the, the premiership of Dan Andrews, I think, had been quietly encouraging before COVID in certain ways. Like it's certainly not perfect and he should be held to account in other areas. I mean, the constant advertising for 3000 new police at the moment is pretty concerning. Um, but you know, other You're more suited than you think Jackson. <laughs> I can, I can use my hands to calm people down. I can, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, anyway, anyway, let's, that's a, that's a different, a different episode, but it's nice you know, the, the Greens um, rhetoric in, in Victoria, you know, through, through Samantha Ratnam, you know, I've been impressed with recently, has been really strong about, and, and Alan Sandal as well, uh, props to her for some comments she made in Parliament the other day, you know, about the opportunity that this COVID economic reset presents to, you know, use the need for, you know, large scale government investment uh, as as that opportunity to, to really make some changes to the way that the state runs and, and, and what it runs on. And, you know, the, the upper house passed uh, a motion to support a green new deal using that phrase that included things like this large scale investment in public housing, like this uh, publicly owned renewable energies, which we are seeing, you know, some steps towards, if not the whole hog. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, we've got to celebrate the little wins and I think, um, the, that's certainly one of them, that we've got a, a parliament in Victoria that at least wants to say that it intends to make these essential changes. Yeah, I think there's been um, quite a bit of discussion over the last little while, as particularly as we ease out of the restrictions here. Um, you know, and shout out to anyone listening from Adelaide who um, seem to be going into lockdown. And I think it's quite a, be a bit of an unnerving situation for people there as the cases have um, quite dramatically gone up there so it's a reminder how quickly things can change but it doesn't you know i guess it's kind of grippling with this idea of um you know it's got the i stand with dan versus the dictator dan um sort of dichotomy in society in victoria at the moment but you know it doesn't really have to be either of those things i don't think and and they're not necessarily little little wins as well i think that they can be really big important things and i agree we really should celebrate that it doesn't really have to mean celebrating um, Labor or Dan Andrews or the Victorian government either, because, you know, the, getting the um, battery farm, public housing, that's not the work of Daniel Andrews or the housing minister. That's the work of decades of, um, you know, people like Joe Toscano on 3CR and lots of other mm -hmm. housing activists who have spent decades raising this as an issue. 
you know, who have spent decades working in the housing sector or, you know, people on advocating for their own rights as people waiting as one of the 83,000, I think it is, people on public housing waiting lists. You know, that's these people that that's their blood, sweat and tears that makes an announcement like that. It's not necessarily the, um, you know, the minister who signs away on the piece of paper. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that people power, all those different people making constant and committed contributions to these change is a nice little segue uh, to the focus of our episode today, um, which, you know, for those listeners that we have, and we do have uh, them because they talk to me sometimes, uh, those listeners that we have that say we spend too long looking outside of our own borders, I'm sorry, we're going to do it again because we're lucky today uh, to have a guest who spent a lot of time in the last few years uh, in various South American countries working as a journalist and even working as a communications uh, advisor to uh, Rafael Correa, the former president of Ecuador. Uh, and he's also a 3CR alumni. He used to be the host of Stick Together here on 3CR. We're lucky to be joined today by Dennis Rogatiuk. Uh, Dennis, thank you heaps for coming on the show today to have a chat with us. Thanks a lot, Jackson, and thanks, uh, James. So, Dennis, the news that lots of Australians get out of South America is rarely balanced, you know, Venezuela being the most obvious example. But the region has certainly elected many professed democratic socialists over the last decade, you know, Morales, Correa, even De Silva. And though the countries may have at times struggled with maintaining the democratic element of that title, uh, after your years there, how would you describe the state of the organised left in the region? What, what countries do you see it as strongest and, and where is it weakening? Well, I would say that uh, we need to break down uh, the, um, the classification, if, uh, if you may call it, of, of the different left-wing, revolutionary, democratic, socialist uh, movements uh, and, and also, very importantly, indigenous movements uh, throughout Latin America. Uh, I'd like to first start to talk about Venezuela as uh, one of the most one of the most prime examples of well a country that has been really a country and a revolution and the process of change that has been demonized time and time again uh, in the in the, in the mainstream media where uh, you know the only uh, the only narrative which is being accepted uh, is the one that is being uh, perpetrated uh, by the right uh, by the right wing opposition and and also by, uh, well, strangely enough, the, the country which intervenes there the most, uh, the United States. Uh, but what, what has been quite fascinating in the case of Venezuela is that despite the years, now, now years of, of embargo uh, by, the, by both the administrations of Donald Trump and uh, Barack Obama, uh, despite the, um, you know, the violence being perpetrated by the right-wing opposition, uh, inside the country, despite even you know the problems uh, created uh, within the state institutions of the Bolivarian government, it's uh, despite despite all that, the actual level of organization uh, remains uh, phenomenal. The level of political organization uh, in the country, and it, it has also been quite evident with the COVID nineteen pandemic, forging stronger solidarity with uh, with, with another with another nation that's been under under embargo for a very long time, that is, uh, that is Cuba, particularly with regards to the, uh, the doctors who have been coming to Venezuela and to other countries around uh, in the region and the world to assist uh, with the COVID-19. So uh, the, case of, uh, the case of Venezuela, uh, this is where I find the level of mobilization, the level of political 
commitment to the uh, to the process of change to socialism is the strongest yet th this is the country which has also suffered the most uh, in the process the other two nations which i think we, we we should really should talk about is bolivia and ecuador in bolivia just a couple of weeks ago we saw uh, a tremendous victory uh, by the movement towards socialism uh, party uh, which was uh, founded by uh, Evo, Evo Morales Aima, uh, who subsequently became the first indigenous uh, president ever to be elected in office in South America. Uh, yet, this is a party which unfortunately, unfortunately suffered a, a coup in November last year uh, following the general elections uh, there. And, also, uh, and the coup that was uh, very much endorsed by, uh, on one hand side, the organization of the American states, mm. uh, which has become more, which has evidently become uh, more and more interested in uh, promoting the um, kind of division of the United States in the region rather than safeguarding democracy. Dennis, um, do, you think that, do you think that some of the characterization in the West of Morales, um, you know, engaged in electoral fraud or uh, Maduro becoming more autocratic, that it, that it erases the efforts by foreign powers and internal groups, far-right groups supported by foreign powers to disrupt the, the successes and the gains of these socialist and revolutionary uh, movements? I would say that uh, when we look at uh, every single left-wing victory that has been achieved, uh, in Latin America, especially in the last, uh, last five to six years or so, regardless of whether, you know, it's Venezuela, Ecuador, Argentina, Bolivia, regardless of what the actual, what the facts are, regardless of the alleged level of populism or authoritarianism, authoritarianism that exists in the country, the tactic of, of the right-wing opposition and the far-right opposition in, the, in those countries has, has sort of gravitated towards that any progressive government, any left-wing government of any sort in Latin America is, is a dictatorship. The most dangerous part of this, of, of all of this, is that, that this has kind of become a, like a collective mentality uh, of the right-wing. So the right-wing has, has, in a way, uh, this, this, I'll say, in a way, sort of parallels uh, some of the, the far-right mentality that we are now finding in some of the mm -hmm. Western country, countries with the, uh, with the QAnon conspiracy theories as well. So these... Uh, we have sections of the population which are now effectively live in another reality altogether and fail to acknowledge the basic facts facts of the mm. matter. Yeah. Dennis, I wonder if we could just go back to talking about Venezuela for a moment. And I think um, sure. you know it's been quite obviously uh, <laughs> there's so much to discuss about Venezuela and you know even just its recent history, but. I guess, you know, I wonder how you would categorize this um, country at the moment. Like, would you say that it is a kind of failed socialist state? I know you talked about some of the, um, you know, community organizing and solidarity that still exists there. And there are lots of people that still very much believe in the, um, you know, socialist tradition and still fighting for the kind of socialist reforms in that country. But, you know, what would you make of, I guess, you know, there are lots of kind of elements to really think about, you know, whether you can exist without the kind of reliance on oil or, you know, as you mentioned before, you know, sanctions from the US, these are having big impacts on the Venezuelan economy and that flows down to those communities as much as anyone. And I wonder, you know, how you kind of categorize Venezuela at the moment and what you kind of see for the, 
um, you know, what an economic kind of reform could look like there? Uh, well, first, first of all, uh, those who categorize uh, you know, Venezuela as a failed socialist state often kind of fail to take, take into account uh, just you know the process by by which uh, you know uh, the uh, the current crisis has uh, has evo has evolved uh, in the country. So, as, as I, I, I've mentioned, uh, the, the problem of the uh, of the U.S. intervention, of the U.S. sanctions, of the mm. US, U.S. embargo, which of course cannot be under understated, because uh, uh, we, we we have to remember that on one on one hand side, as mentioned. The oil exports are a major source uh, of income uh, for the country, and this hasn't just and the uh, the U.S. oil embargo hasn't just you know uh, stopped Venezuela from uh, selling its oil to any any clients it has in the United States, but rather it is the same as in the case of the embargo in Cuba. This has complicated uh, you know complicated immensely the trade with any country with any clients uh, on uh, on the planet. So. Uh, so the kind of economic warfare that has been waged uh, against Venezuela uh, by the United States has been has been tremendous. On the other hand, side is uh, there's this argument which has been around for you know, for actually for as long as Venezuela, for as long as Venezuela has been producing oil, and that is how does uh, how does Venezuela actually you know uh, cure itself of this Dutch disease which has. Uh, which has really been around the country since uh, since since the late late fifties, early uh, early sixties, uh, and this is all. And this has been sort of part of this part of the constant debate and discussion within the Bolivarian government uh, as well. Developing an alternative economy under the conditions of under the current conditions conditions of of embargo has been uh, has been ex uh, extremely challenging as. As you know, uh, let's say let's say Venezuela, Venezuela would, would actually want to um, uh, develop a, a renewable energy industry uh, of its own, for instance, uh, sort of similar to similar to the industrialization projects which exist in Boli in Bolivia with regards to, to lithium. And we have to remember, Venezuela itself is also very rich with other resource, other natural resources, not just uh, uh, not just oil. But in order for Venezuela to commence this commence this process, it mm -hmm. actually needs to acquire the both the human capital and actual capital machinery in order to you know put these plans forward and it's and at the moment it's extremely hard uh, one other, one other thing that i also wanted to mention is that uh, throughout this whole time throughout this whole time one of the major reforms one of the major programs that both the governments has been initiating with, together with uh, the communal council and the grassroots movements has been the uh, the program of uh, mission de vivienda which basically means the construction of uh, public housing unit, units throughout the country, and this is a program which was not discarded when the embargo hit. Rather than, rather it has been continued. By now, by now they uh, they're actually reaching. They'll, they'll soon be reaching something like at least three million housing units built uh, in the last seven years or so. It's very uh, good. But to there's hear been a there's success been... story like that. 
yeah. you know, because I think that's yeah. the kind of thing that is uh, being erased uh, in the mainstream media when, when it's spoken yes. about Venezuela. And it is important for the audience to think about the challenges of any uh, nation building or, or governing in the absence of, uh, you know, yeah, a solid income through trade or the ability mm. to get foreign investment or financial sanctions are often depicted in the West as this kind of, you know, bizarrely, you know, a victimless crime compared to armaments or bombs, but they are so destructive uh, to the people mm. that live in these countries and they, they need to be acknowledged as that. Now, you know, we're, we're running short of time. So I, yes. I, I was going to talk to you a little about Chile, but I'm also curious because I think it's, it's relevant to us here in Australia as well. If you, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the, least, the recent victory of, of Acres, you know, who's a, who's a close confidence and the, and the economic minister uh, for the Morales government previously. But as you said, Morales was the first Indigenous president elected. And I, I just wanted to hear a little bit about what the movement for socialism has been able to achieve for Indigenous Bolivians uh, and, and how that fits into the broader struggle for Indigenous rights in, in South America. Oh, certainly. Uh, well, I think the, the most important achievements of the Evo Morales government has actually been to, uh, you could say, to actually make the Indigenous population uh, visible, once again, to actually make, uh, as, as they say, to actually bring the Indigenous population up to the same uh, up to the same level, or to try to bring it up to the same level as uh, as the countries, uh, um, you know, the middle class and the, and the upper class. And the way that this has been done has been uh, through several reforms. Number one, number one, and incredibly important, is the writing of the new constitution. So uh, during the process of the Constituent Assembly from 2009 to 2010, uh, Bolivia uh, wrote and approved a new constitution which defined the country as a plurinational state. Before that, it was only known as the Republic of Bolivia. Now it is known officially as the plurinational state of Bolivia. And this is important um, for two reasons. First, it, 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 doesn't, it, it acknowledges uh, that uh, you know, the nations, more than 30 different indigenous nations, are, have their place within the within the constitution and have their place, you know, within within the state. But also, but also more importantly, it acknowledges the need to decolonialize, de, de, sorry, decolonize uh, the mentality and decolonize uh, the, the the state institutions of the country. So, 400 years of uh, of oppression, colonialism, neo-colonialism were uh, were acknowledged. Within, within the constitution, and the need the needs to reverse that was also uh, was also promoted. Uh, secondly, it has been the recognition of the rights of the Pachamama or Mother Earth uh, within the constitution. So the the acknowledgement that uh, there there needs to be uh, uh, you know the the ideology of the state needs needs to be needs to be within complete harmony with um, uh, with. with uh, with, with Mother Nature, and uh, this this also this comes directly out of um, uh, some of the uh, political ideologies and uh, philosophies promoted by uh, the by the Qataris and by the Indigenismo uh, movements in Latin America. So, in the case of in the case of Ecuador, we had the the Summa Causae or Living Well uh, philosophy. In the case of Bolivia, this was inspired by uh, Summa Camania. Which also means uh, living well, um, and and you know years and decades and decades of indigenous uh, struggle. 
And finally, uh, it has, of course, been the economic side. So, uh, so the massive, uh, you know, social spending, social investment into education, into healthcare, into new infrastructure projects, into uh, new, you know, cash transfer programs and uh, bonds, the increases in, in minimum wage, uh, you know, the creation of new uh, uh, so universities and new programs for the, uh, for the studies of, uh, of, of, of de decolonization, all of this uh, led to uh, you know, a massive increase in, uh, in living standards of the, of the country's indigenous population, whereby, you know, we are, for the first time, you actually started seeing uh, indigenous professors. Indigenous professors, you started seeing indigenous public servants, indigenous uh, leaders, uh, indigenous, uh, oh, a new indigenous uh, middle, middle class as well. And this is, uh, this is uh, say, quite unprecedented. Because we have to remember that um, Bolivia, before Morales, so the Republic of, the Republic of Bolivia was, if you could say, almost like a semi-apartheid semi state. Uh, it wasn't quite as extreme as, as South Africa, where, uh, you know, the, uh, the indigenous population was completely deprived of, of any rights and, was, and there were signs, you know, there was, uh, there was actual segregation and signs where, uh, you know, they couldn't, uh, where they couldn't enter. Uh, this uh, sort of a version of that, a version of that did exist in Bolivia uh, prior to the presidency of, of Evo Morales. So the, uh, the country's vast indigenous majority has been excluded economically, politically, and socially uh, for decades, well, for centuries, uh, until uh, the government uh, of Evo Morales came about. And I think in the, in the last 12 months of the of the authoritarian regime of Jainanius, we actually saw an attempt to bring back that sort of system, that sort of order uh, there. But uh, of course, this wasn't, uh, of course, uh, the majority uh, in, the, in Bolivia, so the indigenous majority and its, and its allies saw, saw, th saw through that and um, uh, realized that, you know, that they did not want to lose the achievements that they made, that they made personally together with the with the government of Evo Morales uh, during his 14 years of presidency. And this is why Mas is once again back in power. Des, do you think that that, um, that process there of decolonization and of really integrating um, indigenous people into, you know, as, as you said, not just a kind of political process, um, you know, the laws, the constitution, but, you know, really making a much kind of fairer aspect of society and to begin that kind of process of decolonization. Do you think that's a repeatable kind of process that they had in Bolivia there? Something, for instance, that, you know, could be implemented some version of that in Australia. It's certainly, um, you know, a lot of those kind of things, certainly something that is needed here. I mean, we can't really imagine, um, you know, that kind of political influence of Indigenous people here. I wonder if you think that some of that process could be repeated in Australia for Indigenous people here. I really hope so. No, I really hope so, because uh, the... I would say Bolivia actually actually produces uh, has produced what you might call a blueprint for the creation of a plurinational state. Uh, you know, some might say, well, you know, in the case of Bolivia, in, in, in Bolivia, approximately forty-five percent of the population identify as being you know, a member of one indigenous nation or another, and there's a further further thirty percent which considered which are considered to be mestizos or of mixed heritage, mixed sort of indigenous um, uh, European uh, heritage. 
as well as uh, Afro-Bolivians. So some would say that, well, you know, in, in Bolivia, there's a much bigger indigenous, indigenous majority. So how can this be translated in the case of Australia? Well, I would say that, you know, this, the, um, uh, the numbers itself are actually not, not that particularly, particularly re relevant. What is relevant is, is the fact is, is the acknowledgement of the existence of, on the case of Australia, more than 200 different uh, nations, no, the acknowledgement of their existence, but also the acknowledgement that no, that, that no single one of, from these nations is superior to one another. And there is no, uh, there cannot be uh, uh, any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of level of you know, colonialism or superiority or, or imperialism imposed by any, imposed by you know, any other ethnic group uh, that came to the, to the country, and it and and the um, the plurinationality uh, must be enshrined in the con in the constitution. So these just these concepts, I believe, can be translated uh, mm -hmm. effectively from the experience of Bolivia to the experience uh, of Australia. Mm. Dennis, we are out of time. Uh, it's been really nice to talk to you. It's a massive uh, area to cover and I really appreciate you being so open-minded to say we're just going to talk about South America. Right? <laughs> so it's a ridiculous kind of thing to start from, but uh, you did really well and um, I, I really appreciate you making some time to talk to us on Uprise Radio. Thanks a lot, Jackson, and thanks, uh, James. Yeah, thanks to all of our listeners again and we shall catch you in a few weeks' time. See you later. Bye. En las plazas encontrarán nuestros pechos. Hemos venido de lejos a exigir nuestros derechos. Hemos venido de lejos a exigir nuestros derechos. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.